Hello, this is Duran Ornstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the best saxophone podcast ever. Uh, today we have saxophonist, composer, and author Walt Weisskopf, who has worked with legendary acts such as Buddy Rich, Frank Sinatra, Toshiko Akiyoshi, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, and Steely Dan, to name just a few. As a solo artist, he's recorded 14 critically acclaimed albums, bringing on board heavyweights such as Brad Meldow, John Patitucci, Billy Drummond, Joe Locke, and Rini Rosnez, among many others. Under the tutelage of clarinetist Leon Rushinoff in 1988-89, Walt earned a Master of Arts in clarinet performance from Queens College of the City University of New York and has performed with a number of notable classical orchestras. Walt is a distinguished composer who has received multiple performance grants from the National Endowments, Endowment for the Arts as well as funding from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation and Chamber Music America. On top of his performing and composing achievements, Walt has written five educational books, including Intervallic Improvisation, as well as Coltrane, A Player's Guide to Understanding His Harmony. So I got to practice my little radio announcing chops. Welcome to the podcast, Walt. Thank you, Doran. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So the first thing I like to ask is just basically if you can give me a rundown on how you got started in music. Well, I think that's probably pretty typical of a lot of young kids. I went to a very uh, real good suburban school uh, in where I grew up in uh, outside of Syracuse, New York, and I began playing clarinet in the fourth grade without giving it really too much thought. I, I think I picked that instrument because my, my two neighborhood uh, friends also picked it. I actually had taken a couple piano lessons when I was, I guess, five, but I had no patience for it, and I, it's still to this day a big, big regret that I didn't keep on with my piano studies. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I, and I'll never forget the day that I, I told my father that I wanted to stop my lessons, and he turned to my brother and he said, "Would you like to play the piano?" And my brother said, "Absolutely." <laughs> I'm not sure he said it that way, but he was three and a half at the time, and he's obviously been very successful at playing the piano. So uh, uh, I think it might have taught me a lesson even back then that if you want something, you need to be persistent and stick at it, and you have to do some work to get it. And I began playing clarinet in the fourth grade, as I said, and I always wanted to play saxophone. I, I just had this idea that I wanted to play jazz. I wasn't even really clear on what that was. But as uh, years went by, I began to I asked my mother to get me some big band records or jazz records at the, at the library, and she brought back some stuff. And it, I was getting warm, but it wasn't quite what I what I had in mind. And I guess when I was old enough to go to the store myself, I began to get records. And I remember I got uh, big band records, and I uh, kind of accidentally stumbled on Miles Davis, which because uh, I mean, at that time I thought that all jazz was big band jazz, and to me, the idea of small group jazz was, was a, just 
a whole world that I really hadn't conceived of. And I listened and uh, learned a lot by, by ear. I had a very, very good uh, jazz band program in school, and I, I really loved that. And I began to transcribe on my own uh, at home and really didn't know anything about what probably a lot of students do know about today in, in earlier formative years about chord changes and uh, jazz theory and harmony, all the kinds of stuff that we just didn't have when I was that age. And I think that I had the idea that I wanted to continue with music, I guess, sometime in, in high school. And I, I guess at that time, I really hadn't done any professional work until maybe I was about 16 and I began to work with some local bands and ended up applying to different colleges for music. And I went to the Eastman School of Music, which is not that far from where I lived, actually. It's about an hour and a half drive west from where I grew up. And I got a very good education at Eastman. Although, uh, even back then, when I think about the level at which we were as kids, it's nothing like it is today in school. Kids are just much further ahead and, and they have a lot more information as, uh, you know, in, in grade school than, than was available 30, 35 years ago. And I finished up at Eastman in uh, 1980 and I think I just somehow had the notion that I would move to New York and try my luck. And that's what I did. So I guess uh, from, from that point, I'm, I'm certainly not going to say it was easy, but it's, I certainly wouldn't, uh, wouldn't trade the experience for anything. I've been very fortunate, and I won't say it didn't come without a lot of, a lot of practicing and a lot of luck, but uh, I'm very lucky to be where I am. Uh-huh. Well, I know that you were quite young when you got your first big gig, which, if I understand correctly, was with Buddy Rich. I, I understand you were 21 years old. Can, can you talk a little bit about what that gig was like and what working with Buddy was like? Sure, sure. For me, that was an absolute dream come true. I guess I, maybe because I was so young, and I, I did grow up uh, with an awareness of, of what that band represented as far as the, uh, the energy and the tremendous players that came through the band. I guess I understood that on a, a general level. I didn't really know individual players. But uh, when I moved to New York, it was suggested to me by one of my mentors back in Syracuse that I should try and get on one of the bands because at that time there were still touring bands. And it really never occurred to me until that was suggested to me. But then I decided that that was my mission. And I would go to hear the band whenever I could. I remember I went to hear them play in New York City. Um, and I was just, at that time, I was fearless. I still can't believe that I did what I did. I would just walk right up and introduce myself to the players and tell them that I was interested in joining the band if it ever, uh, if, if the opportunity ever arose. And I'm sure that at that time they uh, endured my, my uh, approaches. And uh, through the period of uh, those months and years, I 
living in Brooklyn, I was going to seek out jam sessions, and I happened to meet two of the guys that were in the saxophone section at that time on the, on the band. And when there was an opening, those guys thought of me because uh, they had by that time they'd heard me play. And I got a phone call one day, and pretty much the next week, I was uh, I was on the road. And it was an absolute thrill and also frightening because I did kind of know uh, in the back of my head that I wasn't ready for something like that. <laughs> I just, I, I had this, uh, I think I just endured it out of sheer force of will. And I did prepare. I knew a couple of the songs that they played and I knew a couple of things that I would be required to do in the particular chair that I was occupying. And I did practice and when it came time to uh, do what I had to do I did get through it although to this day I'm telling you I just have no idea because I I just was not evolved to the point where I uh, really should have been where I was but but somehow I hung in and I was just determined uh, luckily I had good section mates who were patient with me uh, I remember my uh, Still, a very close friend of mine, Andy Fusco, he suggested that I play a different mouthpiece. I was playing a mouthpiece that just wasn't blending with the section. And that was a big, a big tip. Uh, somebody else might have just said, this guy's not working out, let's move on. But he lent me a mouthpiece, which I played for the rest of my time on the band. And other guys were nice to me. I was the youngest guy in the band by several years. I remember thinking uh, that... Uh, the next generation of musicians on the band. At that time, I think it was 25 years old. I remember thinking to myself how old that seemed to me. Mm-hmm. These guys seemed like men, and I, I felt like a boy. But uh, that was a, just a tremendous experience. I, I still value the lessons that I learned from Buddy Rich, really, to this day. He was a consummate professional, and I learned a lot about the nature of entertainment and the business of music, which is, uh, in a nutshell, that people are not attending a concert to see imperfection or to see to see you when you have a cold or when you don't feel well. They're there to be entertained, come hell or high water. And Buddy would put on a show no matter how uh, he was feeling. And uh, as you probably know, being on the road like that, uh, you're not always going to be at the top of your game. But he always sounded like he was. He absolutely put 110% into his performance every single time he played. I never saw him let up. And it was uh, an inspiration. And he would, he, he, I, I think that I related to that because he took it very seriously. And if he felt that there was somebody in the band who wasn't taking it as seriously as he was, he got offended. And he'd get very <laughs> angry. Oh, yeah. And that I, I've realized in later years that that's exactly how I relate to music. If somebody that I'm working with isn't taking it seriously, uh, I, I I take offense because it's it's such a uh, it's such a luxury to be able to do what we do. So even though I was young, I was able to uh, to learn from that and uh, and take that lesson away from uh, all those. All those months uh, 
with Buddy. It was just a great, a great gig. Mm-hmm. No, uh, what I like about that and the lesson to take away is how you got the gig, which is, you know, you put yourself out there, you showed up at the gig, and you got in front of the guys and talked to them. Because I think for a lot of jazz musicians, we can be very uh, isolated and not always the most social of creatures. So the fact that you really put yourself out there and did some hustling is uh, a great lesson. I guess so. I guess I think it's mostly just a a product of youth. I was hungry and I just didn't let my my nature, which is really it's not very put yourself out there. My nature is really just to uh hide in the corner. Uh, which is more what I do uh, as a middle-aged man. I pretty much just, uh, I'm not anxious to go hang out and put myself out there. Luckily, I've done some of that, and I have the opportunity to to play uh, in that way. I mean, of course, I'm always anxious to put myself out there in that way, but Mm -hmm. I've never been um, anxious to make connections and be political. Uh, (laughs) and, And so I guess that was... I just went against my my uh, instinct, and I I would make phone calls. I would call anybody up back in those days, and uh, that you're right, it did work to my advantage. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forwarding a few years or quite a few years, uh, one of the things you've become best known for is your work both live and in the studio with Steely Dan. So. Can you talk a little bit about your experience uh, working with them? Like, are they perfectionists, or is it more of a loose environment, or anything you want to tell us about that gig? Well, they certainly are perfectionists. I learned that pretty much right off the bat working with Donald and Walter, and that's also something that I relate to. I think that the what's interesting is on a jazz budget, you have to adjust your concept of what perfection is because those guys would work on a tune for days. And obviously, we're not used to that. As a jazz musician, I made basically a record in six hours (laughs) uh, with a couple of minor exceptions. The first two records, I was lucky enough to have two days. But Mm -hmm. uh, aside from that, it's it's a big difference, and so I think the preparation uh, comes into play. I think what I learned is that uh, when you're on a level at which they're at, you're you have the luxury of being able to take a lot more time to prepare. And I learned this in large part working with those guys. Uh, in rehearsal for touring and we we have typically two or three weeks rehearsal which mm-hmm. is a huge luxury and that was a whole new world to me I mean I've never experienced that and I'll I still have the the uh, kind of maybe training uh, and this is actually goes back to when I was with Buddy you just were never late. If, if you were late with Buddy Rich, the bus would just leave. Hmm. And I knew that. And so consequently, uh, I'm generally pretty on time. And I learned that uh, 
being timely is, it's all relative. Uh, when I walked in at, at 12 noon for rehearsal with uh, Steely Dan, nobody was there except for me. And I, I learned quickly that I really had to just kind of cool my heels and relax a little bit in order to to work on that uh, on that level. We would just basically work for six or seven hours a day, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, continuous playing. We'd kind of get uh, you know people would show up and kind of get warmed up and then. We'd play a couple tunes and then go out to lunch for an hour. And it was really a lot also about getting to know each other and gaining a level of comfort. Because when that first concert hits and there's 10,000 folks in the audience, the level of performance, it's, it's not the same as a jazz performance where there's a little more room for imperfection. There's not as much room for imperfection in this kind of a a concert, which is something that I, I also learned. The the parts are very exposed and pretty much everything is audible. Uh, the only exception might be the solo sections and both Donald and Walter are they're huge jazz fans and they they want that element in the band and in general they really uh, let the soloist do what he would do as a jazz musician. And that's been their, maybe their, one of their big innovations uh, in what they do is to uh, combine pop and jazz and mm -hmm. elements of, uh, of R&B and without kind of compromising the aesthetics of, of each or all of those. Uh, but at the same time, in, in a way, it's, it's almost like playing a solo in a big band and that uh, there's not a whole lot of um, revving up. You kind of have to step up to the plate and just hit it because mm -hmm. the solo isn't that long. When you're playing with a quartet, there might be a little more development because you can kind of play for a longer period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, all this is kind of up to the individual player as to how he wants to handle that, but I, I learned a lot about uh, concept and relating it to different facets of uh, jazz and pop music. As you know, I mean, jazz 50 years ago was pop music. So uh, what these guys are doing is really in the tradition. Uh, so I guess working with... Uh, Donald Figgin and Walter Becker was just really a natural outgrowth of what I had done up until that point. I had produced records on my own, just like they did. Of course, they did it on a much different level. But as a jazz musician and composer, I essentially was responsible for producing my own records because I'm the one who knew the music. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm the one who rehearsed the band. And uh, for the most part, I really had to make most of the decisions. Uh, and I learned that for the most part uh, that's not customary in the pop world. There's usually other ears that are helping you along in that process. So, uh, but certainly to uh, go back to your first question, those guys are both 
perfectionists. And mm -hmm. those many instances where I can recall, we will have been playing a particular tune for months, and then someone will hear something that's just been rubbing them the wrong way, and they'll pick it apart and either correct a mistake or maybe correct an articulation. And we all actually have the same philosophy. The horn players are always listening for what might be improved. And a lot of times your ears aren't attuned to those details within the first week of playing concerts. It takes a while before you hear all those details. So it's an ongoing process. And anyway, as I say, it's just been a huge uh, experience for me, and uh, I'm very, very lucky to have had that experience and continued to be. Absolutely, yeah. That sounds like an unforgettable experience. And I actually was lucky enough to see Steely Dan play in L.A., and you happen to be in the band, so it's kind of funny that it's come uh, full circle for me to get to talk to you today. Oh, it's great to talk to you, too. Yeah, so I was going to ask about your solo albums. I know you've got 14 of them, and most of what's on those albums are original compositions, and you have all different kinds of ensembles, some big ones and small ones, and it's clear your jazz albums, even though you, know, you record them, you're saying, in a day or two, there's a lot more thinking and organization and arrangement that goes into those albums. Uh, than your average quartet recording playing standards. So can you talk a little bit about your creative process that goes into uh, putting together one of your albums? Well, sure. I appreciate your observation, uh, which is pretty much exactly my concept, which is that I never felt that me just getting together with a quartet and picking some tunes to play would be entertaining. It, it seemed, I, I guess I just always had this notion that I wanted to make great records. The great records that I was inspired by um, were the, the genesis for what I've tried to do. I mean, not that I would put myself up against any of those that have inspired me necessarily, but, but that's my job, is to keep this going, uh, as, as it is for those in my generation and, uh, and all, all of my peers. So I think that my, even with a quartet, I wanted to prepare. I think that one thing to consider is if you take an inventory, and I haven't done this in a formal way, but it seems to me, and I've used this example a lot of times, that the recording is that you and I and those who share our ethos have been inspired by are recordings that are comprised a lot of original material by the artist. I mean, we can think of a million examples. There's, uh, well, Charlie Parker is a huge example. He hmm. basically made his name uh, playing tunes that he wrote either by himself or with Dizzy. And of course, uh, there was there were some standards in that mix. But by and large, they had a formula, which was to borrow chord changes from a standard tune they liked to play, like, for instance, Whispering was the harmonic uh, template for uh, 
um, I can't think of the title. Groove and high. <laughs> uh, exactly. Thank you. Uh, and you know, there's lots of examples uh, like that. Uh, but I think the point is that it was their music, and I think you're hard pressed to find examples of jazz musicians who have had that much of an impact that haven't used as the basis for their work their own compositions. And it, it brings it into a different light, which is that that's kind of part of the job of being a jazz musician if you aspire to, to do what we're doing, is to have your own material. Uh, it, it's... You, Everyone has to decide for themselves what is the right mix. Jazz audiences always want to hear interpretations of standards. And so I guess that my formula has been to largely use my own tunes as the basis for recordings and usually have a standard in the mix that I've arranged in a particular way that makes it somewhat distinctive. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially been... Uh, the parameters that I've set up for myself. I, I think it's it's useful to have. You got to have boundaries. You have to figure out what your boundaries are. I mean, a boundary could be that uh, I'm going to play the saxophone. Uh, I'm going to play the tenor saxophone. I'm not going to play alto, even though I could do that. I'm not going to play soprano. I'm going to stick to one thing. That's one boundary. Uh, another boundary might be that I'm going to use uh, acoustic instruments. Um, in the case of most of my recordings, another parameter I've set is I'm going to decide on a specific instrumentation uh, rather than have, uh, as is the case in some kind of all-star records that uh, you're probably aware of, where the artist has a larger budget and the science is going to have uh, you know, a guest star on every record and a different band on uh, you know, every, every cut. That, to me, while it may be uh, novel and maybe entertaining and in some way shape or form that's never been the model for the great records that inspired me and so I decided that I was going to stick to that model and kind of do it uh, as best I could with uh, what I had to offer mm -hmm. well okay um, it's interesting I've never heard of the creative process being defined in terms of boundaries, but that sounds like a great way to start and to inspire yourself uh, because I, I agree those boundaries create uh, freedom. So uh, I think it's actually not a unique concept. I, I think actually Stravinsky spoke about that. Lots of composers have have worked that way. I Probably all composers, but uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you mentioned Joe Locke earlier. Joe Locke has a record called The Four Walls of Freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's actually uh, inspired by a concept that you got to set up your parameters in order to, in order to create. So it's just like saying that uh, if I'm going to create, uh, I have to decide what I'm going to create. Am I going to create painting? Am I going to create uh, a work of dance, a sculpture, in this case music? But you usually have to be further, uh, you know, create some further boundaries. In this case, uh, we're going to call it jazz. Going to mm -hmm. call it uh, acoustic. We're going to decide we're going to record with piano, basses, and drums, and a horn player. So these are, it's just natural to have to have these things that, that are uh, decided before you start work. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, 
moving on a bit, um, I know that you have a book out called Coltrane, A Player's Guide to Understanding His Harmony. And obviously this is a much bigger topic than what we can cover here, but I was wondering if you could give us just a few highlights of what Coltrane's approach to harmony is about. Well, well let me say that when I wrote the book, that actually relates to what we were just discussing, which is a particular set of boundaries that Coltrane set for himself. He was captivated by a particular chord progression that most people agree was derived from a particular page on a book by Nicholas Slanimsky, who's a theorist, and Coltrane borrowed this particular progression and he took it to its logical conclusion, which was to practice it and then to write chord progressions uh, and incorporate this particular variation, which is uh, it's really fairly simple. It's just that it's very difficult to execute. So the, the book was kind of just my, uh, my study of that in particular. I never really intended for that to be uh, in book format. It was what I was practicing at the time and I would try and uh, apply that progression to other more standard progressions. Like for instance, I remember I used to try and apply it to rhythm changes, uh, which is just what Coltrane did. He took the progression and he superimposed it on, for the most part, standard chord changes. Uh, mm -hmm. But not for me as an example. Um, 26.2 is based on confirmation. Um, hot house, not hot house, uh, fifth house is uh, a tip of the hat to hot house, which is also based on what is this thing called love. Satellite is uh, a tip of the hat to how high the moon. So I would try and do that on other other changes and I actually will still do that from time to time uh, it's a harmonic device and in Coltrane's case he spent quite a bit of time uh, doing this it was a, a method for his practice it was a methodology for him to be able to uh, again we're talking about a different facet of the same process he set his boundaries and it enabled him to practice and that's really what all aspiring jazz musicians want to do and the irony is that a lot of jazz players don't know how to create those boundaries so here is a perfect example and I guess I knew that intuitively although I might not have thought about it in those terms uh, when I wrote that book which was uh, I guess I was almost 25 years ago but he used that as his uh, as his template to, to practice. And at a certain point, he realized that he had gone as far as he could go with that particular thing, and he moved on. So I think that the, the, that harmonic concept is really just a, it's a, it's a snapshot in, in time of what Coltrane had ultimately to offer the jazz world. But it certainly was important in that it enabled him to move his 
craft forward. And that's what uh, I took away from that. And it kind of did the same thing for me until I realized that I had to let that go. Just as he is quoted as, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he was obsessed by Charlie Parker for his early years. And at a certain point, he realized that he had to and move forward uh, as best he could. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds with these concepts like Coltrane's harmony and the intervallic improvisation and the use of the augmented scale, these are different harmonic approaches that will enrich your playing and your harmonic and melodic vocabulary. But I was wondering, is there a specific process that you've used to take these concepts, which at first when you're reading it out of a book can be fairly intellectual and even mechanical, and drilling them into your subconscious so that they come out spontaneously during your solos. Um, That's a very good point, but I think the answer is uh, elusive, but it's simple. And we've all heard it said that Charlie Parker said of his own practice that he practiced and practiced and practiced day after day after hour. But when he went to play he would forget about it and he would just play. So that's really the moral is that you're going to have to put those hours in. And I often use the uh, Karate Kid analogy. That's probably, I'm dating myself now, but uh, there's a movie called The Karate Kid. Oh, of course. And it's a perfect uh, analogy really to, to the perfection of a craft and or an art form. And the uh, anecdote that I have uh, related uh, related to my students is uh, when the the young uh, student is asking the old master he wants to learn this advanced move and uh, the old master basically refers him to uh, this rudimentary drill which is uh, I don't know if you recall but he's actually waxing a car so mm-hmm. it seems to the student like it just has no relevance to what he wants to do. Uh, but he essentially has to trust uh, in this method. So that's the essence of any, uh, if you want to move forward in any kind of uh, difficult craft or art form, you kind of have to trust the process. And as you say, all this stuff is merely a mechanical drill, but it all boils down to the same thing. It's just a method to practice. And these, all these methods are really just hopefully serve to inspire others to adapt them to their own practice because the ultimate goal is not to sound like me or anybody else, it's to sound like yourself. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, you have to gain fluency on the instrument. And there's lots of ways to do that. There are some uh, time-honored ways. Um, the most conventional way is to practice uh, classical repertoire on your instrument. So that's probably an efficient way. I mean, there's a reason why practicing written material works. is because, again, we're setting parameters and working within those parameters. So you got to build technique, you got to build uh, consistency of uh, sound production, t- 
home production. Uh, and the, again, the most conventional way to do that is what people have done for generations. So all we're doing with uh, the stuff that I've written down is adapting that to maybe a jazz pedagogy, which is very, very uh, not that much precedent for the pedagogy of jazz. It's really only in the past, let's say, 30, 40 years that all of a sudden there's been this uh, explosion of material. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it really boils down to you're going to have to practice something. So it might as well be uh, one of the books that I've written or uh, Jerry Berganzi book if you're a saxophone player or uh, Eddie Harris has a book. I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. So it might not matter so much what it is as long as it speaks to you and it works for you. But it all boils down to the same thing. You've got to practice something uh, before you're going to be able to use what you have practiced to express yourself. Mm -hmm. So what do you find yourself personally practicing the most these days? Well, that's an interesting and kind of a funny question that you've, you've asked that because right now I'm practicing my own etudes because uh, I was invited by uh, an enterprising young man to record an instructional video and uh, I, I've used the basis of uh, a couple of the books that I've done uh, to, to do that. And I did one in November on intervallic improvisation. And it has been very challenging learning those etudes that uh, I myself wrote, never really with the idea of working on those myself. I never really practiced those myself uh, since I wrote them. Uh, and I'm working on the uh, around the horn etudes right now, so that to me has uh, been very, very challenging. And it's also reminded me of how beneficial it is to not worry so much about practicing improvising, but to practice written material. Mm -hmm. So, of course, both are important, but that's what I'm working on right now. So I'm not practicing uh, too much of anything else because it's, it's very demanding to have to... Uh, the, the interesting thing about this project is that uh, it's not a conventional recording studio where you can fix stuff. Yeah. There's no, there's no isolation. And in essence, everything has to be done uh, without a mistake. Otherwise, it's not particularly useful for the project. So I'm trying to uh, get my chops up so that I can play these things from start to finish without a mistake. And I'll tell you, it is challenging. Oh, yeah. So that's, that's been my, uh, my practice. Oh, that's a good practice. It sounds like something anyone would get a lot out of, whether or not they're making a video. But you have that yeah. added incentive. So I have so many other questions I could ask you, but um, really, uh, I should probably be winding it down. So I always like to close with getting your advice for any up-and-coming sax players out there who are looking to make a career out of music. What, what would you tell them? Well, I guess the first thing to do is be patient and learn your instrument as well as you possibly can. And that has to do with what we were discussing before, which is don't shy away from practicing written material, classical etudes, classical repertoire, at the same time as you're trying to practice jazz. And when you practice jazz, try and be methodical about 
the way you practice, it's always good to use a metronome. Um, it's useful to use play-alongs, but not exclusively. You also need to practice just with the metronome. That's a very, very good thing to do. Mm -hmm. I always use the metronome on, uh, on two and four to try and hear that two and four beat. Uh, and in the long term, being a musician is not an easy way to go. But at the same time, the older you get, the more thankful you'll be for this gift of music that we have. And I think that it will, in the long run, it'll sustain you. There's a lot that has to be done to be able to get by as a musician. You have to be creative with music and in other ways. You know, your model, Doran, is a perfect example. You've uh, used your knowledge to create this website and uh, spread the good word. And that's exactly the kind of uh, enterprising nature you have to have to be in music in this day and age. It's not as simple as uh, learn your instrument and then join a band and make a living. It just doesn't work in that way uh, now, but there's always a place for creativity and um, people who were devoted to, to this music. Very cool, very cool. So, well, I want to thank you so much for your inspiring and highly informative uh, interview. I, I just, I've gotten so much out of it. I think a lot of other people will. So, thanks. So well, I hope much. so. Thank you for having me, Ron. <laughs> yeah. So, we're going to lead out of this podcast with the title track off of Walt's latest album titled See the Pyramid on Crisscross Jazz. And you can pick up a copy of that album on waltweisskopf.com. Uh, and I'll make sure to include a link to Walt's website and where you can buy the album in the show notes for the podcast, which, as most of you know, uh, the show notes can be found at bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com. So I'll have that up there. Um, it, it should actually already be up there by the time you're hearing this. So um, thanks again, Walt. And here Thank is, you, Don. Here's See the Pyramid. <laughs> Thank you. 